Hello, Kubernetes community, and welcome back to the Pod Cuddle podcast. We are glad to be back for another week. Uh, Tyler, how you been, man? How, where uh, where have you been? How have you been? Um, I've been good. Been uh, doing a little bit of travel this week, uh, going out and seeing some customers and kind of seeing what they're up to with their uh, container strategies. I was uh, I was up in New York City this week. I got to go to a, an open source conference, which was just for the financial services industry. So it was it was interesting. Lots of usage of open source and financial services, but still a lot of uh, concern and just trying to figure out like, hey. Can they open source things back into the community? So, kind of a kind of an interesting event up there. Well, listen, we uh, we had a ton of really good feedback last week from the show about security uh, from from people in the community and just stuff on Twitter, which was cool. People seemed to like that it was was broken down. And then what was even better was we got some feedback from people who said, "Hey, I know you guys are going to cover more stuff. Can I come talk about some of these things that I kind of have expertise in?" So very uh, very excited to have Mark Borstein from. Uh, CTO and co-founder of Tremolo Security joining us today. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Tyler. You are somebody who we've known for a while uh, in the OpenShift community. Uh, you've been doing quite a bit of work around containers and identity and stuff. And, and you reached out to us and said, hey, guys, there's definitely more to talk about us about security, which which we knew we needed to. And you said, hey, let me come talk to you guys about some stuff that, that I work on all the time and would love to share with the community. So uh, welcome, welcome aboard. Thanks for being on the show. Why don't you give folks a little bit of your background and then as well as your background and why you started Tremolo. Sure. I've been working in identity management really since I was in college, which was a number of years ago. I started off as a product developer, a startup called Octestring, later got acquired by Oracle in the LDAP virtual directory space. And then I spent the next decade doing identity management implementations. You name a a vendor, an industry cross-section, there's a pretty good chance myself and my partner Brian had worked on it. And we just found that uh, we were spending a lot more time working around issues we were encountering with the vendor products we were working with rather than actually solving our customers' business needs. So uh, we got together. We kind of came up with this idea of building, before it was cool, this notion of, of containers or microservices, but you know, just taking all the different components for identity management and shrinking it down into one what we would call today container. So your LDAP virtual directory, your user management, your your uh, uh, web access management, your federation, and your user provisioning and reporting, and just shrinking it all down to one component. And uh, at the time, uh, the buzzword was uh, virtual appliance, was the buzzword everybody wanted to use. And then um, I was at uh, Red Hat Summit um, as an attendee four years ago, five years ago. And it was just as OpenShift was really starting to gain some steam. And I started to hear about these containers, and then I was there a couple of years later, and you know, Docker containers had really started to to take off at that point. And it just made a lot of sense for us to say, hey, let's let's take our virtual appliance and shrink it down to a container. Uh, and then we got a little into uh, Kubernetes and OpenShift, and it's been really interesting to watch because a lot of the original ideas in Kubernetes authentication authorization were lifted from OpenShift. There are some variances, and we'll talk about that. But we we started working on first running inside of OpenShift, and so we learned all the the inside and out. And then we started figuring out, okay, well, how do we actually manage access inside of OpenShift? And then a little over a year ago, I started to get involved with Kubernetes and working with their RBAC implementation, their OpenID Connect implementation, how they do certificates. And so being able to really merge those worlds of identity management, which tends to take much more of an integration and business focus, and then Kubernetes, which, I mean, is just setting the world on fire. Very cool. It sounded like it made sense, you know, at the time back in the day, the the virtual appliance approach, because, you know, people, more operating systems to manage or is, is never something uh, people are looking forward to. So uh, virtual appliance seemed good, but then you were basically just outsourcing your OS management 
attachment to someone else for some specific things. And so, yeah, moving that into containers, especially, you know, things that don't need that much of a footprint, the containers. Containers make a lot of sense. So, you know, most of our audience is uh, obviously very Kubernetes-centric and, and obviously Docker-centric. What's your perspective about user authentication in Kubernetes and kind of how customers are authentic to Kubernetes? And, and you know, you mentioned, you know, some things like, um, like federation stuff and, and how authentication plays into that. It's actually kind of interesting. I, I When I talk to folks, I tend to see it kind of falling down into uh, the people who are using Kubernetes down in, into to two camps, two, two swim lanes. One is your, I don't want to say startup because that's not the right way, but, but more focused, more focused on either a single product or a single service. And so they're using Kubernetes to help drive that. But it, you don't have a lot of different business units involved. Uh, you don't have a lot of different stakeholders involved, I guess, is, is the way I'd explain that. And then you've got your, your kind of your typical enterprise where the complications are as much organizational as they are technology. The person who owns Kubernetes might not own Active Directory. And so the question then becomes, okay, are the people who are paying all those bills lined up and saying, okay, well, you know, yes, I'm willing to dedicate resources to this process. Uh, and a lot of that will dictate what you end up doing inside of Kubernetes, how you approach it. And then just because Kubernetes is kind of interesting because it's sort of a web application, it's a web service, you know, from an authentication standpoint, but it's also a lot more. It has some very interesting points to it that kind of make it different than, okay, I'm just going to deploy, pick your favorite web app, Drupal or whatnot, because of the different mechanisms of interaction, not just a browser, if you're talking about the dashboard, uh, which we'll talk about later, but also, you know, kube control. And, and I didn't really bring it up when we talked before, but, you know, and then there's this whole other item of we're mostly talking about how users authenticate, there's this whole other set of projects that are also dealing with how pod authenticate and how the individual containers authenticate and how do you assign an identity to these things that really interesting and, and, and some really interesting projects around that. Uh, so it, as Kubernetes still continues to grow, especially in that enterprise space, it, it's really interesting to see kind of the different lines people fall down. Why don't we break down some of those things in, into basics? So let's take let's take user authentication. You know, what, what do we need to know about? What are the challenges? And, and maybe, you know, sort of first and foremost, when we say user authentication, what do we what do we mean by the user? Is the user a developer? Is the user uh, an operations person who manages the platform? Like, Walk us through sort of the, the user side uh, of authentication around Kubernetes and, and what we have to think about with containers. Sure. So um, first, the answer is yes, right? I mean, it's the developer. It's the operator. Um, it might be some automated processes that are going to interact with Kubernetes uh, or your applications running on Kubernetes. Um, so it, it, it can be all of the above, you know, and it's really going to depend on your deployment, how you're approaching it, some things to just think about. You're probably going to do user authentication differently if you're standing up all of your Kubernetes infrastructure on your own or if you're using one of these managed services. And so the, there's really two things to think about when you do the breakdown of authentication is one, who's going to own the authentication information? Who owns that information? Uh, you know, Project Management 101, own your dependencies, right? Uh, so you, you want to own as much of that as possible. But depending on what you're doing and what industry you're in, you might not be allowed to own it. Uh, you might have to have a, interact with some kind of central 
repository, whether it be uh, Active Directory, LDAP, ADFS, whatnot. So there are so many things to take into account. And when you look at how Kubernetes does authentication, there's I think there's like six ways now you can do it. Uh, the biggest three probably break down to certificate-based authentication, which is what probably most people do at least right off the bat. Uh, OpenID Connect, which is uh, if you've ever done sign-in with Google, that's how that works. Uh, that's the protocol for that, and, and we'll talk about what that is in a second. And then uh, proxy-based authentication, uh, where you can have a, a proxy that sits in front of your API server and says, hey, uh, this is Mark. Trust that. There are advantages to all of them. You know, certificate authentication, that's the first one. And it's the one that, you know, everybody really starts out with for the most part. It's pretty easy to get up and running. A lot of the Kubernetes deployment mechanisms now have built-in ways to better manage that. And so it's pretty easy to get off the ground. I'm going to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of it, uh, at least in enterprise setting, really for a few reasons. Uh, one, certificates are very hard to do correctly. Uh, it's one thing to use the OpenSSL command to just generate a cert um, or even a CA. Uh, it's another thing to have proper revocation set up. Uh, make sure your CRLs are constantly updated. Once you start getting into RBAC, it gets a little more difficult because um, the only way you can put group information into a certificate is through actually embedding it into the cert, into the subject. And um, you know, then that becomes even more important to be able to revoke because what happens when you know roles change or whatnot. So uh, it's very hard to do correctly. The other thing to think about when you're talking about, especially in enterprise environment, is you're probably deploying into an existing network infrastructure. And in order to do certificate-based authentication, you have to have a direct connection with your termination point. So if you're deploying Kubernetes behind web application firewalls, blue code proxies, net scalers, you know, all sorts of equipment that love to drive people that are trying to build things insane but are, are there for very important reasons, uh, certificate authentication really tends to interrupt that. And so it, it, it's really important to think about the larger context in enterprise. And then the next one you have is OpenID Connect. Uh, this is my personal, whenever I talk to anybody, I say this is really the way you want to go because it's really a lot easier than it sounds when, when you first start looking at it. And the idea here is, is that you generate a token. This token is cryptographically verified by an identity provider. And the nice thing is, is that the token is short-lived, so it can be revoked. You can embed authorization information into it. So we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to RBAC. And the token, Kubernetes has enough to verify the token, but not enough to generate one. So even if somebody were to get network access to your Kubernetes environment, they can't start generating tokens for users. It also provides a way to have some separation. So let's go back to certificate authentication. And let's say you're talking about a very highly regulated environment. I do a lot of work with federal government. So we have PIV cards, smart cards for, for everybody here outside the Beltway. And whenever you want to do smart card authentication, you're like, ah, just stick your thing behind a reverse proxy. You're like, well, no, I don't really want to do that. OpenID Connect is great because you can create a bastion where it can be locked down and that where you can have the direct connection to do the the certificate authentication, and then you can combine it with other data for authorization information, 
and then get into Kubernetes. So it, it takes away some of the pain of, of certificate management inside of Kubernetes. And then you have a reverse proxy, header-based, where you basically say, hey, here's a user. This user is Mark. Here's Mark's groups. I'm not a huge fan of that approach either, uh, because in order for it to really work, you need to have really strong perimeter security. And I just, you know, we could talk for hours about the failures of perimeter security over the years, you know, mentions of Beyond Corp and whatnot. Uh, and so it's, it's there, it's relatively easy to get up and running. But again, I think it introduces uh, a lot more pain than, than uh, people really realize. Cool. cool. Yeah, you know, one of the things you were you were talking about, you know, came up you, about RBAC or authorization. You know, while we're talking about authentication here, it's one of the sometimes you know, unless you're you know working in a day to day basis, people overlook it a little, right? The the concept of authentication versus authorization, where authentication, you know, like you said, hey, this is this is Mark. Uh, where authorization is here's here's what Mark's allowed to do here. So at a high level, how does you know that authorization or role based access control work uh, with inside Kubernetes? Great question, and and this is where um, I. I think the uh, a lot of the confusion will often come in because there are so many different ways you can do it. You know, from a technical level, you have a role that or a cluster role that defines what you can do. Uh, and so a, a role will apply to a namespace. A cluster role will apply across the entire cluster. And then you have subjects. A subject can be a user, like Mark is going to do something. A group, uh, you know, Mark, Brian, and Tyler are a group, right? Or a service account, you know, something defined inside of Kate. So, you know, maybe a pod, uh, a service account, or, or a service account you create on your own. And then you bring them together using a role binding. So you say, okay, here's my role, here's my subjects, this is how I bring it together. Uh, and then you can define that either using YAML or kube control now has a couple of commands to be able to make those changes on the fly without having completely reload the role binding each time. And so the question then becomes, okay, how do you figure out who's authorized to do what? Um, how do you then say, okay, uh, Mark is authorized, is a developer, so he's authorized to view a production config, but maybe not authorized to edit, uh, whereas the operators uh, are, who are responsible for actually deployment they're able to do that. And there are a couple of different strategies you can use with that. Some of that ties back to authentication and how you authenticate the user. The, the thing with Kubernetes is, is, is Kubernetes has no concept of a user. They have a user ID, but it's not like a directory or even most application databases where there is this thing known as a user that has an identifier, maybe a few attributes, and some group memberships. That doesn't exist in Kubernetes. Um, if you're using OpenShift, it sort of exists. There is a concept of a user, but it's not quite as tightly bound as, as folks um, in kind of more of the legacy app space are used to. But there really is no concept of a user in Kubernetes. Everything is bound to specific objects, specifically the role bindings. And so there, there are really a few different ways that you can authorize users depending on how you authenticate. One way is to assert groups. Uh, and this is my personal favorite way to do it, where when the user performs an action, whether it is authenticating via a certificate, open ID connector, reverse proxy, they also say, these are the groups I'm in. You know, a certificate, you can trust it because the certificate can't be tampered because it is signed. If you're talking about OpenID Connect, same thing. Your groups are a claim inside of your assertion. Uh, and so again, cryptographically signed. And then if you're doing a reverse proxy, you, you can embed that. So the nice thing about that is that that puts the onus on the identity provider to figure out who's a member of those groups. 
And so that removes a lot of the needs. Also, from an audit standpoint, if you think about it, uh, it's very hard to go into Kubernetes and say, who's Mark and what does he have access to? That's really hard to do inside of Kubernetes. So that's that's the first approach. And that's what I would call more the enterprise approach, because you're relying on some kind of a external service to make those decisions. The other way you can go is you can individually name users. You can name a user as a subject and then put them directly into a role binding. Again, I'm not a huge fan of that approach, if only because it's really hard to, at scale, automate and manage that. Somebody says, who has access to this resource? You've got to go through and figure out all the role bindings and every subject that it ties to. Uh, and that can be pretty laborious. So if you can externalize that, that makes that process a lot easier. At least takes the onus off of Kubernetes and lets you focus on deploying code. Let me ask you a question. Um, so there's there's obviously in, in Maybe this is just a simple answer. Maybe it's more complex. You know, there, there's a lot of different ways to interact with Kubernetes or, or even the, the platforms that are built on Kubernetes. Some people will use the CLI. Some people want to write directly to, to some of the Kube APIs. And, and other people will use the kind of embedded dashboards and so forth. Do people have to think about authorization and, and authentication differently for, for each one of those? Or, you know, is it because they're essentially built on the same API, the, the same thing? Like, how, how do we think about that sort of dashboard level of versus maybe some of the other ways of, of, of gaining access to the system? Uh, so that's an area that's really exciting right now because the, you're starting to really see a convergence where, depending on how you set things up, you can actually do what you just described where, okay, there are some things I want to use the CLI for, there are some things I want to use the dashboard for, especially when you, once you start talking about big companies. Executives love those dashboards and love pretty pictures and being able to show that, that that's up and running quickly. And so um, a lot's been going on, especially in the dashboard project, to be able to have have that passed, you know, when when you start talking about kube control uh, versus uh, the, you know, kube control just uses the APIs, right? I mean, the CLI just uses the APIs, and it's driven off your kube config. Dashboard, you know, up until 1.7, just use the default service account. They're really, in theory, you could assign that service account specific authorizations, but, you know, the, it, it really had no sense of authorization. Whereas with 1.7, you can actually authenticate to the dashboard, which is really cool. The couple of mechanisms it has, it kind of echoes the API. You can either give it token, um, like just through the UI, uh, you can the login screen, you can give it your kube config. Or the other thing, and this is the way I really like to do it, is you can just go ahead and put it behind a reverse proxy that knows how to talk OpenID Connect and embed the OpenID Connect token in every request, and it'll just pass it right through. So if Mark is an admin, he'll be able to do things admins can. If you know Tyler is only authorized to work on Tyler's namespace, it's not going to be able to do any work on any other namespace. And so that, that brings a whole new dimension to the authentication and authorization process, because now you can actually, you don't have to do things differently for each environment, dashboard versus API versus CLI. You can use the same strategy. Again, you know, OpenID Connect and Reverse Proxy are probably the easiest ways to do that, I think. You know, that's kind of in the OpenShift world. That's a big, powerful one is using the Reverse Proxy authentication. OpenID Connect is my personal favorite, just because I think it's really flexible. I like the idea of having tokens that are alive 
alive for one minute uh, and then just can't be used for anything. And just make sure you're constantly keeping those tokens updated. But there's really a lot of interesting things you can do now, especially now that the RBAC API and a dashboard are all kind of working together. It really is taking Kubernetes authorization to a whole new level. Tyler, you know, I, I think the thing I, I, I took out of today was was very much the, the good news is there are a lot of different options that are out there for, for companies. Um, you know, you can uh, you can have uh, operations level ways of looking at things. You can look at it from a dev perspective. There's there's a lot of different options for security professionals. And the other good news is, you know, this can be applied for sort of greenfields and startups, but there's also, you know, much more kind of robust battle hardened ways of doing it that are going to be more appropriate for enterprises and large, you know, sort of multi uh, multi-group enterprises and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think the the good news here is the technologies of um, you know using token passing and things like that, like OpenID Connect, are, aren't you know being invented for Kubernetes. They're existing things, and and in the really big enterprises, I'm sure a lot of shops have some sort of existing uh, authentication and authorization scheme and, and technology. So you know, it's, if you can integrate something that already exists, it's less less work for you, and you know, and less different things that your users need to sign into different places. So I think uh, you know, while you know, when you just so, you know, if you do a, a mini cube or something like that, or, or mini shift, and you're just you know messing around with the the built-in authentication, like that's fine. But you know, when you actually want to use it in any scale. Um, you know, having a more centralized authentication authorization scheme seems to make uh, a lot of sense. And Mark, let me ask you one last question just for, you know, because we're seeing a lot of companies who, you know, are deploying platforms, deploying, you know, Kubernetes and containers, and it's it's kind of forcing them to to rethink their organization, whether they're, you know, trying to do DevOps, they're trying to be more agile. Where does the where does the team that, that sort of owns authentication or owns those, you know, single points of truth where do they tend to live? Is it is it a security function? Is it where where are you seeing it in these in these new organizations or evolving organizations? So what's old is new again, um, and the more things change, the more things stay the same. Yeah, you know, especially on the enterprise side, the people who own the identity is mostly going to be your Active Directory group. Uh, those are the folks that you know you've you've got to log into your workstations. Um, that's your that yeah you know, that is your single point of truth for the who. And, and I, I generally break down identity management into who, what, why. Who are you? What you can do? Why can you do it? Where things start to get a lot more interesting is the the what. What can you do? And the authorization data. Because the people who own the authentication data, it's usually pretty easy to talk to them if all you want to do is authenticate or read attributes. That part's usually pretty easy. Uh, where things get a lot more complicated is when you need to have your own authorization data. Uh, if you start saying, well, I, I want to set aside a part of Active Directory just for Kubernetes, that can get really painful from an organizational standpoint. Yeah, it's not that hard from a, a technology standpoint. LDAP's, you know, how many decades old? But from a, a organizational standpoint, you know, that, that's the keys to the kingdom. That That's pretty tightly shared or, or, or pretty tightly held, rather. So um, the, the key to, to, I think, success when it comes to a Kubernetes deployment is leverage the who, uh, you know, leverage your enterprise who, your, your enterprise identity management for who are you. So that way things like, you know, we always talk about how quickly can you onboard, but you want to also make sure you can quickly offboard mm-hmm. and get people out of the system quickly. Sure. Uh, and, and so let, let, let enterprise figure that out, whether it's security, usually it's the Windows services group, you know, but let, let them, they handle that. Let that be their problem. And then uh, on the, the what, that's where you can get really creative of, you know, depending on which of the 
paths you go for authentication and authorization, be able to manage that on your own. I, I, I would not recommend trying to own the who because then you, you become HR and uh, you, you know that, that brings on a whole other gotcha. set of uh, worries. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, listen, cool. I think we're going to, we're kind of bumping up against our, our, uh, our time zone here. Where's a good place if people want to reach out to you sort of, you know, we, we kind of scratched the surface on some of these topics. What's a good way for people to, to reach out to you or sort of follow up on conversations? What, uh, what's a good way for people to, to find you online or, or out and about in, in the public? So, um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at MLB. I am, uh, it's in the show notes and of course, Tremolo is at Tremolo security. Um, I love talking to people. I, I love getting into discussions. Um, I guess 280 characters now, uh, uh, not 144. <laughs> but, um, you know, so please hit me up. I love talking to people, um, whether you agree with me, like me, think I'm insane, you know, any of those. Uh, I will be talking at KubeCon Thursday afternoon about identity management and compliance, the ever so uh, entertaining subject of compliance for uh, uh, Kubernetes and identity management. Um, and we're working on a couple of really interesting open source projects uh, for Kubernetes and for OpenShift um, identity managers. So the idea being of creating a central portal for um, getting access to Kubernetes and getting uh, uh, assigning access and whatnot all through automation uh, rather than manually doing it. And we're doing that all on GitHub and, and the links are in the show notes. So uh, you take a look at that. We've documented how we're approaching it. And, you know, we're open source. We're an open source company. So we love contributions. We love opinions. And uh, we love following up with folks and talking with them. Tyler, any last thoughts on uh, building on, on more of digging into security here? Um, no, I think it's just, you know, we're, we're, we're now, what, two shows into security. And, and we're, we're still kind of, you know, just at the basics. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a complicated, you know, it can be a complex, large topic. Um, but my big takeaway from uh, you know from things like this and and talking to customers is uh, the easier you make security and the more seamless and and you know something they don't notice the more likely they'll use it and you'll have more protection so things like this where you know if it's even easier for them to log in with existing credentials they already use from one of your other systems you know that's something that's just lowering a barrier to entry but at the same time making easier manageability so i think anytime you can you can do both it's a, it's a win for everyone no i think that's i think that's great insight and i think you know like we've said the the more you can make things sort of default and uh, and seamless and frictionless and so forth the more adoption you're going to get and um, you start to grow grow the foot print of what you're doing so very cool tyler thank you so much again today mark uh as always thank you so much for your time today uh, really really appreciate it folks um, definitely go tech, check out mark's projects and uh we're going to wrap it up for this week and uh thank you all for listening thank you for telling a friend and uh giving us ratings on itunes and with that we're going to wrap it up and we will talk to you next week mm-hmm.